Uh, I want to think about the, the title of that hymn, Creator of the Stars of Night. If there is anyone who could save the world from its problems, it would be the creator of the stars, wouldn't you think? The creator of the stars save this world from its problems. And sorrow that the ancient curse should doom to death a universe. You came, O Savior. That's the message of Christmas, that the Savior came. This morning I want to think about how does the Savior go about his saving. And I want to look at the prophet Isaiah, chapter 9. And we looked at this scripture a few weeks ago, but we're going to, we're going to read a little bit further on. So this is uh, Isaiah 9, 1 through 6. Uh, if you brought your Bible, please, please open it up to Isaiah, about halfway through your Bible in the Old Testament. If you're using one of our Bibles um, in the seats in front of you, uh, page 683. Nevertheless, there will be no more gloom for those who are in distress. In the past, he humbled the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the future, he will honor Galilee of the nations by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan. The people walking in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of deep darkness, a light has dawned. You have enlarged the nation. You have increased their joy. They rejoice before you as people rejoice at the harvest, as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them, the bar across their shoulders, the rod of their oppressor. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning, will be fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. A peace... It's got to be one of the most valuable commodities, sought-after commodities today because it's actually quite rare. And God says, you can have peace. And he sent the Prince of Peace. God says, you can have peace because of a child. And I want to think about how in life we act like we think differently, that there's... That peace comes from something else, not a child, not a child. And if we think historically um, about what is written in Isaiah, it wouldn't surprise me if the ancient Israelites felt the same way as many of us do today, that, yeah, you can have peace. How's it going to come through a child? Um, The northern tribes of Israel... Zebulun and Naphtali that were mentioned in the Isaiah chapter 9 story. They were the first to be invaded by the Assyrians, came from the north. And Assyria was the world superpower, the world super threat 
at the time. And what the Assyrians would do is they would, uh, they would advance Syrian culture in the world by, by conquering a land, a nation, a region, and they would take all the prominent citizens, those with wealth and influence, they would take those wealthy, influential citizens and they would uh, cart them off to Assyria where they would be exposed to Assyrian culture. Then Assyria would, re- would move some of its own citizens down into that land that, w- that was uh, taken over. So now it's occupied by Assyrians. So these ancient Jews living in Zebulun and Naphtali, northern Israel, they, they found that their world was completely turned upside down. And no matter which Jew you were, whether you were one of those that were carted off to Assyria, or if you were one of those left behind in Israel, you you now found yourself living in Assyrian culture. Your world was completely flipped um, upside down. Families and friends, they were separated. Just If you're one of those Israelites, you'd be thinking, what has just happened? Everything that is familiar to me is now, it's gone, it's different. They experienced a complete loss of control. And, and just think for a second how often we equate peace with control. I feel at peace when I feel that I am in control. This makes sense because I don't have to worry. If I'm in control, I don't have to worry about what is going to happen tomorrow, right? Because I'm in control. And somehow I think that that gives me peace when I think that I am in control. And this, this association with peace and control, that affects uh, who we would hope for in a Savior, in a Messiah, in um, someone promised by God, like was promised in this Isaiah Scripture to Jews living in the 8th century B.C. when all this was happening. We can envision those Hebrew people with eager expectations as they they heard this prophecy from Isaiah. And if you look, if you have your Bible open, look at verses 3 through 5. And just the promise here from Isaiah, You, God, have enlarged the nation of Israel. You've increased their joy. Remember, their world is being turned upside down. But God, you, you uh, are increasing their joy. They will rejoice as warriors rejoice when dividing the plunder. Not just kind of this happy, cheerful joy, but this, this uh, just kind of gut-level um, f- feeling of joy, of, of I'm in control, Right? I've just defeated my enemy. I I have the plunder. For as in the day of Midian's defeat, God, you have shattered the yoke that burdens them. And the day of Midian's defeat uh, is a reference to a story of uh, the Israelites in Gideon when when God led them... uh, in battle against the, the Midianites. The Midianites' army numbered over 100,000. And if you remember that story, uh, you find it in the book of Judges. Uh, God reduced the Israelite army to how many men? 
It's like 300. 300 against over 100,000. And God gave him that defeat over the Midianites. So just like in that day when God gave you this amazing victory over your enemies, you will rejoice and he will he will uh, break that oppressive yoke from your shoulders. Every warrior's boot used in battle, every garment, every military garment, military uniform that has been bloodied from battle, it ultimately it, it's, it, they could just be thrown in the fire, burned up in the fire because you're not going to need them because you, because God has given you this, this victory. So this is what the Israelites I've heard promise to them. You can imagine them say, well, that's great. This is great news. Tell us more, Mr. Prophet. Tell us about this, this super savior, this Messiah, this leader who's going to come and give us this military domination. Okay, Isaiah continues. For unto us a child is born. A child a child, Mr. Prophet, we're, we're expecting something a little different to come out of, your, out of your mouth or from your pen at this moment. A child, how is a child going to give us victory over our enemies, Mr. Prophet? Maybe, maybe one day this child will grow up to be just like King David and give, and, and give us military victory, but that's a long way off. How? Is a child right now going to help us? The child poses no threat to the Assyrians or to the Babylonians or to the Greeks or to the Romans, these later empires that came in and dominated uh, God's people. How will a child help us to have victory over our enemies? And this leads us to a conclusion. And this conclusion is at the very heart of the story of the Bible and the story of humankind. Uh, And here is that conclusion, that my greatest enemy is not somebody else. Hmm. My greatest enemy is not somebody else. It's not somebody else. It's not somebody's else. In other words, my greatest enemy is not my boss that doesn't seem to appreciate my work, doesn't uh, seem to care about all the work that I'm putting in, doesn't seem to value me. My enemy is not the, not the guy who's after the same girl that I'm after, or not the girl that's after the same guy that I'm after. That's not my enemy. That's not my greatest enemy. My greatest enemy isn't my neighbor who's just strange that I don't get along with, that never mows his yard. That's not my enemy. It's not, it's not my neighbor that keeps overstepping neighborly bounds. That's not my enemy. My greatest enemy is not the political party that ideologically seems to see life completely differently than I do. That's it's not my greatest enemy. My greatest enemy isn't that even even that extremist group, the terrorist group that I see on the news killing people. That's not my greatest enemy. That's the conclusion that Isaiah 9 helps us to reach. My greatest enemy is something that is inside my very self. What is it? Well, my greatest enemy 
is my sin. It's my sinful condition. I want you to look at this verse from uh, Colossians. Colossians chapter 1, verse 21. It says, Once you were alienated from God and were enemies in your minds of God <laughs> because of your evil behavior. And people might not readily associate with that verse. Enemies with God? Really? You know, your average citizen out there, am I really an enemy with God? Really? When confronted with our, our sin, we generally say one of two things. One, I, I'm not that bad. I mean, how can I be an enemy, of God, an enemy of God when I'm just trying to go about my business and stick to my family, get my family going in the right direction, and be generally a good person? How can I be an enemy of God? I'm not that bad. Or we'll say, ah, my sin's not that bad. I mean, there's a lot of worse people out there than me. Yeah, I may make mistakes. I might lose my temper here or there. I might uh, see a bad movie here or there, visit a bad website here or there. But really, come on. It's not that bad. Enemy of God, really? But the Bible paints a very bleak picture, actually, of the human heart. And... uh, the Apostle Paul is in tune with the the human heart at its natural state and kind of the bleakness of it. And he quotes from the Psalms as he writes this letter to Christians in Rome, writing to Christians in Rome, not heathens in Rome, but Christians in Rome. And this is what he writes. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does does good, not even one. Now, that's not a very pretty picture of humanity, is it? It's just not. Uh, But there's this truth about us, and that is that we generally are really poor judges of our own hearts. If you think that you are, just take a moment and imagine if you were required to carry around a recorder wherever you went. But it didn't record your voice. It recorded your thoughts. Every thought that you had go through your mind throughout the day. And just imagine if this recorder, if, if at the end of two weeks, what was on the recorder was played for everyone around you to hear. That would be rather horrifying, wouldn't it? It would be horrifying for me. But we generally avoid admitting that. And I want to briefly list three ways that we generally avoid um, just realizing the darkness inside of us. One, uh, we often project our sin onto others. When we can't face the sin that is in us, we project it onto others. Uh, Carl Jung once did this, not really an experiment. He just proved a point. He proved this point. Um, he once had a, a picture, showed a picture of Adolf Hitler. And underneath the photo of Hitler, there was this, uh, this quote. And here's the quote. 
this man is going to set all Europe ablaze through his incendiary dreams of world domination. Here, that picture seems right, Adolf Hitler, with this quote. And then comes the surprise. That quote was actually something that Adolf Hitler said about Winston Churchill. When we can't deal with our own sin, what do we do? We project it onto someone else. Uh, I can be an expert at picking out the sins in others. And this is kind of what happened with um, King David. I don't know if you remember the story of King David when he was confronted by the prophet Nathan. This happened right after Nathan had an affair with Bathsheba, covered it up, stole Uriah's wife from him, wound up killing Uriah. And the, the prophet Nathan confronts David about this. And how does he confront David about it? He comes up with a story, tells a story of a fictitious man that essentially does the same thing. He's telling David basically what David did, makes up another man and, and tells a, uh, what this other man, this fake man did. And David becomes enraged at this fictitious man. And then Nathan shares the surprise. No, you are this man, David. And one of the things that I like to say about the fallenness of humanity and our own ability, inability to kind of come to grips with that is if it can happen to David, it could happen to you, right? We think, ah, I'm not that bad. Listen, if it can happen to King David, it could happen to you. It could happen to me. We're guilty of this, being unable to see our own sin. Two, we relativize our sin, and we just think that we're more moral than others, and probably not much has to be said about this particular point or much explanation given, and we know how to do that well. We look at someone else and say, at least I'm not like that. At least I'm better than that. And we just relativize our sin. It's not as bad, as it seems, as what that person over there is doing. They're doing pretty well. Three, our anger blinds us from seeing our own sin. We simply sometimes are just too angry with someone else to bother looking at our own sin. Someone else needs to pay for this anger that we have inside Someone else is at fault for the anger that I'm feeling, not us. And this is what happened with Cain when he murdered his brother Abel right beforehand. God warns Cain. This is in Genesis chapter 4, and here's what God said to Cain beforehand. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Here's uh, chapter 4, verses 6 through 7 of Genesis The Lord said to Cain, why are you angry? Why is your face downcast? And why are you just angry at your brother, Cain? And there's this warning, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So there's this warning, Cain, you are angry and you're putting yourself at risk of Sin taking over your heart. Don't you see it? And Cain was not able to see it. Either he was unable to see it or just didn't care. 
because someone else had to pay for the anger that he was experiencing in his own heart. Why do we do this? Why do we hang on to anger like that? Ultimately, we use our anger as a way to stay in control because remember, we equate control with peace. By holding on to anger, I can keep this little narrative going on in my mind. I'm right. I'm justified with my anger. I know I'm angry, but I I have every right to be angry. And we hold on to that anger because we think if we hold on to it, we can keep convincing ourselves, I am in the right here. Because my enemy over there did something wrong, and I'm in the right. That's why at some gut level, we would prescribe a different solution to our enemies than God does. Our solutions for our enemies would be like bigger weapons, not a little baby. All the military boots and clothing would be destined for burning. Why? Well, because we've got bigger guns. We've got bigger missiles. That's why, because we're going to overpower our enemies. I'm either going to outmuscle, outsmart, outreason, or out-insult my enemy, we think. And that's how I'm going to gain victory by remaining in control. And we have this deep desire to dominate. We have this habit for hatred. We We have this sin inside of us. And what does that make me? My sin makes me an enemy of God and the world. Because I'm seeing others who differ from me as my enemy, and generally I don't want God's blessings for them if they're my enemy. That's how I'm an enemy to others and to to the world, through my anger, through my sin, because I'm not wanting God's blessings for them. I'm wanting them to go away. I'm wanting God to curse them. (laughs) So, what was God thinking when he came to the world as a baby? Why did he do that? As the solution for peace. One, talk about two things. One, God comes as a baby to show us that he comes in peace. Knowing who God is is not the uh, it's not the most simple of tasks. How do you know who God is when when the Bible describes God as infinite? When the Bible says that while we are here in this world now with sin in our hearts, we see uh, through a glass dimly or through a glass. Cloudy. How how can I how can I really know who God is? That is not necessarily a simple thing. Well, we know that when God made his very first public appearance, he didn't come in a dazzling display, do we? We know that God was born not as a monarch, but a child. And not a child born in a palace, but a a child born in a very 
lowly place just reserved for livestock normally. So what does that say about God? I I think it says, if you were to ask God at that moment, he was born in a manger, God, do you come in peace? Yeah, God would say, yes, I come in peace. I come in peace. I come in peace for you. By all appearances, God came in peace. He came to show you I am a loving God. I am approachable. If you ever doubt my heart towards you, just think back to Jesus' birth. He came to make peace between you and him. So do you know that you can have peace with God? You can know that God has come in peace towards you. And Jesus, the child, shows that to us. And two... Why did God come as a baby? God came as a baby to break the power of hatred. See, God has an amazing solution to the anger, to the hatred of humanity, to evil. God has an amazing solution to that. See, the way that God solved the problems of warriors' boots and military clothing and weaponry, God's solution to that problem was not just one-upping the army, or one-upping the, the military officer. I mean, God, God didn't go all crocodile Dundee. Remember him? That's not a knife. This is a knife. You know, God didn't one-up in the weaponry. But that's exactly how we, yeah, half of y'all have no idea who a crocodile Dundee is. I know that. Go back to the 1980s and rent the movie, you know. Um, he doesn't, God's solution isn't, okay, I'm going to show them. And I can. I'm going to show them. That's what I do. I'm going to show them. That's not what God does. Because showing them, that just begs on more violence. That just, that just perpetuates the problem. God's solution was instead to diffuse evil and hatred by receiving all of that hatred, all of that evil, all of the anger on himself. and dying on the cross instead of retaliating. See, you can receive peace by trusting that Jesus Christ, this child born to us, really is God's Son, very God indeed, and that he took your sin, he took your anger, he took your hatred, he took all of that darkness, and he put it on himself when he died on the cross, and he completely diffused, he, he, he brought, he, he defanged, sin and evil and hatred. He made it powerless by not retaliating. And then Jesus said, done. It's all done. God's wrath has been satisfied. There's one bit of application I wanted to mention. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. He's the Prince of Peace. When Isaiah used that name, it was to convey a specific image of a kingdom. He was describing a kingdom coming to the Israelites. The prince of peace will establish a kingdom of peace. So here's the rhetorical question of the morning. What should I expect to be the hallmark trait of the kingdom ruled by the prince of peace? 
peace. The prince establishes peace. And then he asks the citizens of his kingdom to live in peace. Not to live in control, to live in peace. To propagate that peace. The Prince of Peace invites you to be a person of peace. That's the application. The Prince of Peace invites you to be a person of peace. So, the next time that you are really upset at someone, or someone's, and your blood begins to boil, and you think stuff like this, you are such a plague to the earth. I wish you were just gone. What if you were to think in that moment, for unto us a child is born? What if you were to think, I don't have to pass on my anger. I don't have to, I don't have to perpetuate and propagate my anger I can instead propagate something else. I can propagate peace at this moment. I could lash out at this person. I could hold on to this passive-aggressive grudge. I could do that. I could talk badly about this person. I could do that. But somehow Jesus was able to take all of that anger and that hurt on himself and not pass it on to us. So why do I need to do the same? Why would I need to pass it on? So who's that Who is that person in your life right now that you think is your enemy, but you know it's not your worst enemy? Your worst enemy is right here in your heart. Imagine giving up your anger or your your frustration. So putting this question in one more way, and then we'll end. What is God asking you to do with that person or persons right now so that you could be a person of peace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, all we can do is thank you for your mercy. All we can do is thank you that you could have squashed us. You could have said, I'll show you. I'll show you my wrath. You could have done that. You spared us. Instead, you placed your wrath on your son to diffuse your wrath so that we could have nothing but your love and your peace and your, and your joy and, and, and live in your kingdom of peace. Thank you, thank you, thank you. We pray that you would help us to um, look for ways to, to share that peace, to be people of peace. Pray that you would help us to give up our anger and our hatred and just be filled with Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.